The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. Tonight, I want us to look in Mark chapter 12, and we're going to look at verses 18 through 27. And this, this is an episode that occurred in the life of Jesus during, during the last week of Jesus' earthly life before the cross. That's not completely an accurate statement because he had an earthly life after the cross. <laughs> but, but you understand, I hope, what I'm saying, that this is the last week leading up to Calvary. And there's quite a bit in this gospel and all the other gospels about what happened in that week. And it shows us some of the interactions between Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. We're right in the middle of some encounters between Jesus and the Pharisees where they are questioning him. And they're not questioning him to find out information. They're questioning him to try to trap him, try to trip him up. We saw initially, beginning in the end of chapter 11, that they questioned his authority. You know, by whose authority are you doing all these things? And of course, he turned it around on them and said, all right, you tell me whose authority John did those things, and I'll tell you how the authority is that I do my things. And of course, they couldn't answer that. Last time we were in this gospel, we saw they began to question his politics. Uh, you know, is it lawful to pay taxes? You know, that's a relevant question today, isn't it? And he just turned it right around on them, said, look at the coin, and look whose it is, and render to him, to Caesar, the things that are his, and, and render to God the things that are God's. And tonight, uh, we see that they begin to, they come to him questioning his theology, questioning his theology. And we're going to begin reading in verse 18. It says, Then come unto him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection. And they asked him, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us, If a man's brother die, and leave his wife behind him, and leave no children, that his brother should take his wife, and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were seven brethren, and the first took a wife, and dying left no seed. And the second took her, and died, and neither left he any seed. And the third likewise. And the seven had her and left no seed. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, when they shall rise, whose wife shall she be of them? For the seven had her to wife. Now, I want to stop there. We'll certainly pick it up there in a few minutes. But, uh, but I want you to notice what's happening here. We want to look, look at these Sadducees, okay? Look at these Sadducees. And, and let me tell you just a little bit about the Sadducees before we go any farther. This is an oversimplification of it. I realize that there's a lot deeper uh, uh, information about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and what I'm about to tell you. But in general, you can understand that the Sadducees were wealthy aristocrats. They were liberal in their politics and very conservative in their theology. Whereas the Pharisees were very liberal in their theology, but very conservative in their politics. And what I mean by that is this. There was a, this was a time when, when in, in history it's called the Hellenization of the, of the, of the uh, Near East. And that is, uh, uh, the uh, Hellas was the, the, the Greek name for Greece. That's what they called themselves. And so Greece was, uh, uh, was a, a 
a place where it was just, um, there, there was a lot of, uh, of, of poetry. There was a lot of classical growth. There was, you know, it was, it's the seat of democracy. It's where democracy was, uh, was born, was in Greece. And then the Romans came in and conquered the Greeks. Of course, this was, this was uh, uh, a period of time that, well, it takes too long to tell it, but I just say this. The Romans came in and conquered the Greeks. And, and even though the Romans were more powerful, the Greeks kind of overtook them in their arts and in their sciences and that sort of thing. We hear, the, you've heard it said, the glory that was Greece and the grandeur that was Rome, okay? There really was a lot of glory in Greece as far as uh, that's the place where there was a lot of great philosophers and great thinkers and so forth. And Rome was, wasn't really full of a lot of great philosophers and a lot of great thinkers. They kind of stole from Greece and Anyway, then eventually Rome conquers uh, the Near East, including Israel, including Jerusalem. And so uh, what Rome did then is they brought these Hellenistic policies, these Greek, this Greek way of thinking, these philosophers. You know, you read about it over in uh, about the middle, about the 15th chapter of Acts, maybe the 17th chapter of Acts, where Paul is on Mars Hill and it said the Greeks love nothing better than to hear or to tell some new thing. They loved that kind of thing. They were great thinkers, but they were pagans. They, 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 they were so caught up in their ancient traditions. And so what happened was they brought all of that into Israel. They brought all of that into Jerusalem. And, and the Sadducees didn't mind that. They didn't mind that. They, they kind of compromised with the Romans. They didn't mind. Serve, they served in some of the high positions in the temple and they, they were real practical about, well, we don't need to make the Romans too mad. We don't need to, uh, you know, it's okay to accept some of these cultural changes that are going on. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they were very much against that. They weren't quite as bad as the zealots who would kill over it, but the Pharisees did not like Roman rule, and they wanted to throw it off, cast it off, and reinstate a theocracy of some sort, either a kingdom or some other kind of rule that was strictly ruled by the Mosaic law. So they, in politics, they were opposed to each other. They weren't friends. Now, it's interesting that, uh, as, as, as you often uh, hear, that <laughs> let me just encourage you to sometime go out there and, and, and start a conversation, say, between someone who might be a, a, a Southern Baptist or a, and a Methodist and some other denomination out there. Uh, they might all disagree on a lot of things, but if you bring up that you're a primitive Baptist and you start telling them what you believe, they'll all gang up on you. <laughs> I promise you. <laughs> I promise you. They're not, that'll unite those folks together. They may not get along and agree on many things, but they will unite against uh, what you believe. Well, that's kind of what happened here. That's kind of what happened with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They united against Jesus and against his true gospel. Now, on, on, uh, in theological terms, when it came to, to Scripture, uh, when it came to what they, they considered to be authoritative, okay, the Sadducees were very conservative. They only accepted the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. That's the only thing that they accepted as, as inspired Scripture or authoritative Scripture. The Pharisees believed that all the prophets and, and all the wisdom writings were, were also Scripture, and they also had oral traditions. In fact, that's those traditions that Jesus kept 
fussing at them about, saying, you have made uh, the, the word of God of no effect by your traditions and teaching for doctrines the traditions of men. Sadducees didn't agree with that either, but they were literal, strict interpretationists of, of the old law, and they and the Pharisees didn't agree. And as a consequence of that, you see, the afterlife, heaven, is not mentioned much in the law of Moses, uh, but as you get on over into Daniel and Isaiah, and those, he starts talking about heaven and things like that, but the, the Sadducees wouldn't take that. So, so they, they opposed these unwritten oral traditions. They opposed anything but the, the first five books, and they absolutely did not believe in a resurrection, an afterlife, the spirit world, anything like that. If you, if you ever have trouble remembering you know, the Pharisees believed in, in an afterlife. They did believe in heaven. If you ever have trouble separating the true, the two, keeping the two separate in your mind, the Pharisees and what they believed and the Sadducees and what they believed, just remember what Brother Sonny Piles, I know Brother Buddy knows what I'm talking about. Just remember something Brother Sonny Piles said one time. He said the Sadducee was sad, you see, because he didn't believe in the resurrection. <laughs> so, so just remember that and you'll be able to keep them apart. But that was their beliefs. That's where they came, that's how they came into this. And that's why it says in verse 18, they then come unto him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection. And we're going to talk about that in a minute, but think about how sad that situation is. And because they didn't believe in the resurrection, and they start telling him, asking him questions about the resurrection, you can know that their motives, once again, were not pure. They were not trying to gain information. They were trying to ask him a question that he couldn't answer. And in their case, instead of focusing upon his authority or focusing upon his politics, they focused upon his theology. And, and let me just say this, beloved, you young folks particularly out there, make no mistake about it. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the linchpin of our theology. If you have any kind of systematic theology, and all systematic theology is, is a, is a theology that works together as a system. That's all it is. And that, that's something you ought to be working on throughout your whole life. And that is trying to learn from the scripture what, 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 uh, what election is, what predestination is, uh, what justification is, what, uh, what regeneration is. You know, all those things, they aren't separate doctrines that stand alone. You, we certainly have to treat them that way. We have to preach sometimes. All we have time to preach on is regeneration, or all we have time to preach on is justification. But they all interrelate. Right. It's a systematic theology, you right. see. And if your systematic theology, if your belief system does not include a belief in the resurrection, you're in the wrong place tonight, beloved. <laughs> Because if you're, if you're a member of a church, beloved, that does not believe in the resurrection, you're not really a member of a church. <laughs> you need to get out of that organization and find you a true church that does teach that. So they're questioning his theology here. And they crafted this hypothetical question that they thought would stump him. And their question was this far-fetched example that... <laughs> Is based on the law of Moses. I'm not, I'm not really going to turn back there because I don't want to spend much time on it tonight. But just make a note if you're taking notes to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 25 in verses 5 through 10. And it tells you, that's, it says here, it says, Master Moses wrote unto us. That's where, that's where Moses wrote unto them. It's in Deuteronomy 25 and verse 5. And the, 
And what Moses said was, you know, it's really important in that day that a man have a male heir. It was very important. Uh, that was sort of the linchpin of their culture, if you will. And so if a man got married and, and he died before having a, having a son, then under the law, that wife was to go to the man's brother and they were to, if she was to become his wife. And, and, and when she had a son, the first son she had would not take the brother's name, but it would take the name of the, of the one that died so that he would have a progeny. He would have a generation, if you will, a genealogy. So they come to him with this far-fetched example, this hypothetical question that they thought would stump him. But you know what? <laughs> kind of has become a pattern here. that We see that this didn't stump Jesus at all. Jesus, you know, have you seen these, have you seen these politicians, especially of late, that something kind of questionable comes up or maybe some reporter has a really hard question? And, and they act like they don't hear, and they just keep walking. Hey, what about that scandal in your past? And they, hey, how are you? And they keep going. They never stop, you know. They just ignore the question. Or, or suddenly they get distracted on something else. Jesus, Jesus didn't do that. Sometimes you'll see someone in public office or a public figure that's questioned about something, and they come real defensive. Boy, they get real angry and mad and they just you know why are you asking me that question what are you okay jesus didn't evade the question you know I, that's one thing that i i think is hilarious and watching whatever news channel you watch fox news whatever is that uh someone some reporter will have maybe the speaker of the house or or the president even or some other senator or representative on and say we're going to interview them about what time of day it is, and I'm just using that as an example. And, and they say, sir, uh, we just wanted to ask you what time of day it is. And that person answers and says, well, I tell you what, I had a good breakfast this morning. I really enjoyed my time at Disney World. And I, I, certainly, uh, I certainly think that, uh, that, that, that my campaign is better. You know, they completely deflect the question, evade the question, and never answer what's asked. Let me just say to you, beloved, don't be that way Amen. when the world questions you about the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Right. Be prepared to answer. Peter tells us, be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh thee of the hope that lieth within you. We should be answering Christians. We should be willing and ready to defend the faith. You know, Jesus was. Jesus was ready just like he was in the two episodes before. And he immediately shot back with them an answer. And you know what his answer was? <laughs> you are dead wrong. <laughs> you are dead wrong. Notice what he says in verse 24. Jesus answering said unto them, Do ye not therefore err, because ye know not the Scriptures, neither the power of God? You know what he's saying to them there? He's saying, look, you're asking me a question that is a nonsensical question, a foolish question. You're coming to me with this hypothetical that you've made up and you're just foolish in the first place for asking it and the reason you are is because you don't know what the scriptures say. I was talking to the kids, um, I think this afternoon, um, about some of the philosophers of the world, the atheists who are philosophers. They say, 
Well, you believe God is all-powerful, right? Yes, I believe that. Okay, that means he can create anything, right? Yes, I believe that. Then they ask you this question that's going to stump you, they, they think. and you know, They say, can God create an object that's too heavy for him to lift? It's like, what? <laughs> you know, I get to thinking, what is he talking about? Well, philosophically, that's a good question. Philosophically, if you want to go into philosophy, boy, that's something that's a brain teaser and it'll get you thinking. But scripturally, it's a foolish question. You see, and sometimes that's our problem, beloved. I've said this for many years, that the, the problem with the fatalist, the problem with the absoluter that believes in the absolute predestination of all things is he, he comes to that point somewhat like this. He says, well, God knows everything that will ever happen. And we preached about that this morning, right? God knows everything that will ever happen. He knows that, for instance, you're going to die on such and such date. He knew that my daddy was going to die on January 1st, 2020. Therefore, it had to happen that way. And therefore, God absolutely predestinated it because there's no other way it could be. Well, there's, a, there's, a, there's an area of philosophy called determinism. And the idea there is that nothing, I think Sigmund Freud said there's nothing that ever really happens by accident. It's all based on, you know, this, this pebble falls down and hits a, hits a boulder, which hits a log, which hits the, you know, falls into the ocean, which causes a wave that ends up causing a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico. You know, something like that. And it's, it's all predetermined. Some of the ancient Greek philosophers believe that. The Stoics believe that. Uh, the Muslims believe that. And unfortunately, some of our old primitive Baptist brethren believe that. But you know what they're doing? They're philosophizing. They're philosophizing. They're not going to Scripture to see what Scripture says. They're going in their minds and in their brains trying to figure out, oh, well, if this, then that, and that, and the other, and all. Listen, don't delve into matters too high for you. David said, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go into things that are too high for me. And Psalm one. 31 in verse 1, he says, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty, neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. Now, that doesn't mean you can't think about some of these things and you might say, you know, that's kind of an interesting question and I'm going to speculate a little bit. But when you come down to what you build your life upon, the foundation for your walk with Christ, it better be on the scriptures and nothing more. Don't get into something that's too high for you. Anything outside the scripture, if you try to apply it to God or to anything that's, uh, that, that's contained within the scripture, then you're going someplace that's too high for you. You're being haughty, you see. Pride is always the culprit when we try to rest scripture to our own beliefs or add to scripture rather than letting the scriptures say what it means and mean what it says. Don't delve into philosophy. And so Jesus says, you err, first of all, because you don't know the Scriptures. And then I'm going to skip over that second part of that to verse 25. He says, for when? <laughs> you know, I'm so, I'm so glad he didn't say if. He didn't say if they shall rise from the dead, when they shall rise from the dead. Beloved, our lives ought to be lived as a when and not an if. Don't, don't ever get the idea that the resurrection is either past or, it, or it's not coming. Don't say, well, if the Lord comes back. I, I may have said that sometime, but when I say it, I mean when he comes back. He's coming back. When 
he says, when they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. He's saying to them, the scriptures teach us, if you just knew the scriptures, you would know that the scriptures teach us that earthly life is not all there is. There is something better awaiting us. And yes, I know what it says here about marriage. And yes, by God's great mercy, I've been married today for 29 years to the, the greatest woman on the face of the earth. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I got her. <laughs> okay? She got sort of shortchanged, but I got her, you know. <laughs> I, I got a good deal. <laughs> and I can't hardly imagine that there's something better than marriage. I can't hardly imagine that in heaven, everybody's not scrambling around to get married like I was 29 years ago. You know, I couldn't think of anything that was greater than marriage 29 years ago, and I still feel that way. There's nothing greater on this earth than a good marriage uh, between uh, two people that love each other and show that to one another. But I want to tell you something, beloved. The resurrection is coming one day. And in that resurrection, there will be something more satisfying than anything this world has to offer. There's, there's, there's something better than marriage awaiting to, uh, for us. There's something greater than any earthly bonds of whatever kind they may be that's waiting for us. Think about the purpose of marriage. One of the primary purposes is to show the love between Christ and His church. The relationship between God the Son and His elect bride, His elect people. Uh, one of the purposes of marriage, and we ought to remember that in our marriages, is it's to show others how Christ loves His bride. Men particularly, we ought to remember that. Also, one of the primary motivations behind it was God looked around in the Garden of Eden. He said, everything's good. But it's not good for the man to be alone. <laughs> you know, it's not good for the man to be alone. So companionship. He said, I'll make a help meet for him. I'll make someone who can be a helper for him. Now certainly, I don't want to get off on this, but certainly there are some, he deals with it in the scripture, there are some of God's children that are able to make it in this world by themselves without marrying, and, 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 and they do so for the kingdom of God's sake, and certainly that's fine. I'm not talking about monks and nuns. I'm talking about some of God's children. I, I will just say this. Sometimes you hear about some young lady or even some young man who, whose biological clock is ticking. <laughs> and they've got to go get married to the next person they find or else they're afraid they'll never get married. Beloved, you don't ever need to get married if it's the wrong person. <laughs> you need to remember you are married to the Lord Jesus Christ. You are married to him. He is your great husband, your greatest companion but remember that companionship is one of the purposes of uh, of marriage but guess what in the resurrection we're going to have all the companionship we could ever need or want you see sometimes we read this to say well i just i won't be in love with my wife or my husband anymore we won't even be married anymore no let me tell you what you'll be you'll be closer to them than you've ever been in your life You'll be closer to that spouse than you ever dreamed you could be in this life. In heaven, our relationships will outshine anything we ever thought possible on earth. In Revelation chapter 5, I, I, I don't, well, let's do, let's turn there just for a minute. Our time's 
going, but it's not going that fast. Revelation chapter 5. Notice our relationships with each other in heaven. John saw this vision here, and in verse 8 it says, When he had taken the book, speaking of the line of the tribe of Judah who had gone up to take the book, the scroll out of the hand of the king that no man could take. It says, the four beasts, when he had taken the book, and four and, four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb. And he talks about their harps, and it says in verse 9, they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the, thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. There's going to be people in heaven from every kindred and tongue and people and nation. People you've never met before. You're going to not just meet them in heaven and be acquaintances. You're going to be in perfect fellowship with them. Perfect companionship. And it says, I beheld and heard the voice of many angels around about the throne and the beasts and the elders and the number of them. And this is everybody. This is the angels and the people of God in heaven, all the elect family of God, including all the cre created beings of God, it says the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. And you're not going to be singing discordant hymns either. You're not going to be singing different songs. You're going to be saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And he goes on to say every creature which is in heaven and on the earth are going to be crying out these same things. See, with each other in heaven, we're going to have all the companionship we will ever need, better than anything we ever thought possible on earth. And even better than that, though, beloved. You know, heaven's not going to be heaven because of the great happy family reunion we're going to have up there. I look forward to that. I do, brother buddy. I look forward to the family reunion. I look forward to seeing my father again and the loved ones that have gone on. Uh, as I live longer, I'm sure I'll lose more loved ones. And I look forward to that, re, uh, that reunion with them. But beloved, the reason heaven is going to be heaven is because Jesus is there. In Revelation chapter 21 and verse 3, listen to what it says. In describing heaven, John says, I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be with them and be their God. I know the Holy Spirit is with us tonight. I feel the Holy Spirit here. I felt Him in the song service. But He is not physically here. I cannot go up to Him. I cannot sit down beside him. I cannot hug him or, or kiss his cheek or, or rest my head upon his bosom as the apostle John did when Jesus was here in person. But oh, beloved, one day we will be in heaven and we will have perfect companionship and fellowship with God in person. Oh man, isn't that going to be great? Oh my goodness. Don't tell me this is a downer here when we read this about, oh, they don't get married in heaven. Praise God, it'll be better than marriage in heaven. See, me and Sherry aren't going to be living in separate sides of heaven. <laughs> I kind of got a feeling maybe we can slip off and hold hands together sometime. I don't know if that, that's probably just speculation on my part. But, but I'll tell you this, I'll be closer to her than I've ever been in this life. And I can't imagine that, but praise God, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> By the way, just a little side point here. He said... <clears throat> When they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. He didn't say they will be angels. 
we don't die and gain our wings, okay? I mean, I understand people sometimes say things like that and take comfort from that, and, 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 and you know, I, I get it. But, but to be scripturally accurate, let me tell you something. We're not going to be sitting up on a cloud, strumming a harp, flapping our wings from time to time, fanning each other. We're going to be standing around the throne of God, and there'll be angels there with all kinds of wings. I don't even know how to describe them. Some of them look like they've got multiple sets of wings. I don't know, but I'll tell you this. We're not going to be them. We're going to be us. We're going to be us. Glendon Junkin is going to be Glendon Junkin. I'm going to be Chris McCool. You're going to be you, okay? Praise God for that. And I tell you, I look forward to seeing Brother Clinton in heaven. I don't know if they have a good catfish place up there, but I tell you what, I don't. It'll be something better, won't it? <laughs> anyway, let's not go too far down that road, but uh, just understand that we're not going to be angels. We're actually better than the angels. God didn't die. Jesus didn't die for the angels. He died because he loved you so much. Okay, Jesus says also, he said, you don't know, you err. By the way, that word err there is the word that we, we use for planet. And you know why? It was, the Greeks had this, had this description, they had descriptive words. And, and, and I think it was planus was the word here. And it, had, and it denoted wandering. So these Greek astronomers would look up into the sky and you'd have the North Star and other stars fixed. But you'd see these weird little stars that were wandering across the sky and those were the planets they were wanderers okay and he's saying here you're you're wandering you're way off <laughs> you're way off track you're wandering out there in the wilderness you don't you err because you don't know the scriptures neither the power of god see they didn't know scriptures and they didn't know god they had forgotten a very important point that you and i sometimes forget and that's this. He is God and we are not. Pretty simple, isn't it? But sometimes we get it mixed up. You ever having trouble in life? Sometimes to ground yourself and to reorient yourself to where you need to be, you might just need to say, you know, wait a minute. I'm not God. <laughs> I'm not God. He is. And he says in verse 26, he begins to talk about God. He says, and as touching the dead that they rise... Have you not read in the book of Moses? Let me stop there and say, they didn't, they didn't trick Jesus at all. You know, these Sadducees only believed in the books of Moses. There's a lot of places Jesus could have gone in the book of Isaiah. And he quoted Isaiah a lot. Jeremiah, he, he, he quoted. Zechariah, he quoted. He knew them like he knew the back of his hand, we would say. He knew, he knew what would speak to them. He said, have you not read in the book of Moses the only scriptures that they accepted as authoritative? He says, have you not read in the book of Moses how in the bush God spake unto him, that is unto Moses, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You know, if we would just remember sometimes that God is the living God, God is the great God, he is the self-existent God. When Moses asked him back over in Deuteronomy, uh, Exodus chapter 3 rather, he said, who, can I, who do I need to tell him is sending me? And God's, you know, instead of going through some elaborate discourse, 
about the, the, the beginnings of, uh, of his origin, which he didn't have. He never originated from anywhere. He said, you go back and tell them, I am that I am. <laughs> I am that I am. When they ask you who's sinning you, you say, I am hath sent me unto you. The great tetragrammaton, the, uh, the four letters, Y-H-W-H. That was how he was identified in the, in the Old Testament scriptures. And so It was so sacred, it was considered so sacred, they wouldn't even, they wouldn't even use that. The Jews wouldn't even refer to him in that way. They would, they would call it Hashem, the name. That's all they would say when they were preaching or speaking in their synagogues. He is the great I Am. He is the great self-existent one. He is not the God of the dead. He is not a dead God. Friedrich Nietzsche was a great nihilistic philosopher, which he believed that everything was just what you see. There was nothing beyond what you see. And he proclaimed in one of his writings, God is dead. Now, I don't know if this is a true account, but someone wrote one time that he, he, he saw some graffiti on a, on a wall somewhere in Germany. And the graffiti went like this. It said, God is dead, Nietzsche. And down below it, it said, Nietzsche is dead, God. <laughs> now, I want to tell you, beloved, you're only going to be an atheist right up until the day you die. <laughs> One second after you die, you're no longer an atheist. I promise you. I promise you. You see, God is not a dead God, and I'm so glad he's not the great I was. Certainly, he always has been. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. And I'm thankful for purposes of my daily walk that he's not the great I will be. Oh, he will be tomorrow and the next day and every day through, after that throughout eternity. But he's the great I am. He's the great I am. And you know, it's amazing, isn't it, that when you read about God, he's just always there in the word of God. He's just always, you say, well, what about the book of Esther? You may not read his name in Esther, but you see his work throughout the book. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You can start there, and then you can turn all the way over to the book of Revelation. Chapter 22 and verses 20 and 21, and it says, He which testified these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And the final verse of the whole Bible is, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So God is there at the beginning and he's there at the end. Genesis begin, deals with the beginning of, of, of time. Revelation deals with the ending of time. And at both bookends of the spectrum, God is there. God is there. You see, God is an omnipotent God. He is the all-powerful God. We read in, in Ephesians chapter 1 about the exceeding greatness of his power. And because he's omnipotent, he not only created, but he sustains this universe. He upholds all things by the power of his own might, Hebrews tells us. And you know what that means? Because he's omnipotent, he can even raise the dead. Pretty much it when someone dies. We've had some death affecting our church recently. We've had some death in the last two or three years. Uh, of those who attend here regularly, some family members of those who are members. And you know, it's a sad thing when somebody dies to us because that's it. 
I was looking at a picture of my father today, and I was thinking, you know, I sure do miss him. I sure do miss talking to him about things. I miss so many things about my grandfather, about uh, Sherry's uncle that just died, and others I could name in my life. I miss them. But you know what? If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, then we can also believe that he's coming back again. Someone said one time, if you can't get around in the beginning, God, you know, one of the problems with the world today, we don't believe in creation anymore, do we? We do, but the world doesn't in general. They believe in evolution, that man just morphed out of the sticky goo of primordial gunk and one day came walking out of that and became a monkey who became a man and so forth and so on. I guess that might be a little oversimplification of the theory of evolution, but, uh, but it pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? You see, if you can't get past Genesis 1-1, you're going to have problems with the rest of the Bible. But if you can understand Genesis 1-1, that in the beginning God created all of this, He created the heavens and the earth, you don't have a bit of trouble believing that God caused an axe head to float. You don't have a bit of problem believing that He could heal a leper, He could make the blind to see. You don't have a bit of problem believing that He could make a man who had been dead four days and, and was stinking by then through the decomposition process come out of that grave and, uh, and, and be just as alive as He was before. And praise God, you don't have a bit of problem believing that one day He's coming back and He's going to gather every single atom of every single child of God who's ever died, wherever that may be, and put them back together in a way that's even better than they were before, in a way that's perfect and whole and complete, and bring them home to be with Him. <laughs> praise God. See, these Sadducees were messing up because, number one, they didn't know the Scripture, and partly because they didn't know the Scripture, they didn't understand the power of God. If you believe in the power of God, you understand it like it is, and guess what? You're not going to have any trouble with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. There were a lot of people in Paul's day apparently that were ignorant, and that doesn't mean a pejorative, in a pejorative way. They just didn't know. They were struggling with this. And he said, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant. He said, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. These old Sadducees, as Brother Sonny said, were sad because they didn't believe in the resurrection. All that existed for them was what they could see with their own two eyes. And when it was over, it was over. When they died, they were dead all over like the old dog Rover, as you've heard it said before. <laughs> Paul said, I don't want you to be ignorant like that. He said, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Do you believe God's powerful enough to come down here and take on the form of a man and literally become a man and then go to the cross and die and rise again? He, he spit out a world. He spit out a universe just by talking it. He actually came down here and rolled up his sleeve and got to work when it came to salvation. And he died but then he rose again. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. He's not talking about some kind of soul sleep. He's talking about a body sleeping in the ground. These bodies out here are sleeping in the ground, but praise God, their spirits are with the Lord. And that's what he's talking about. He's going to bring those spirits back. And they're going to be reunited with those bodies. 
He said, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. That means literally go before, but it brings to mind something I've mentioned to you before, and I've heard the older folks talk about it, that years ago when they first started putting vaults out here in the, in the cemeteries, that there were some folks that resisted that. These metal vaults that you put the casket in and you close them up, they were afraid that when the resurrection came, they couldn't get out of the vault. <laughs> but beloved, I want to tell you, it's not going to be a resurrection by your own power. It's going to be a resurrection by the power of God that they didn't understand about, but you need to understand it. It's the power of God that can obliterate a vault. It can, it can take you from wherever you've been. Those whose, soul, whose bodies rather were completely burned up and destroyed in 9-11, praise God. He knows where every atom is. He knows where every particle of their being is. And he is, he is able to bring it back together and resurrect it on resurrection day. For this we say by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. I'm so glad he's not going to leave that to somebody else to do. You know the old saying, if you want to do it, you, you want it done right, you better do it yourself. God wants this done right. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore comfort one another with these words. <laughs> I don't know how the Sadducees ever had any followers. Because I don't know how there were ever there was ever any comfort that they could ever preach. Brother Sadducee, my mama's dying. Will I see her again? No, I'm sorry. You better make the most of it while you got time. Brother Sadducee, I've had a rough life. I've had a lot of troubles in my life. I've been sick. I've been maybe a beggar like Lazarus. I've been put upon. I've been kicked around. I love the Lord. The Lord has made a change in my life. You think that there's something better waiting for me? No, I'm sorry, brother. There's just nothing better for you out there. I'm sorry to tell you that, that you can't, I can't give you any comfort or any hope. Oh, what a horrible doctrine. Paul says it's so bad that if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Praise God. We don't have hope only in this life. Jesus said to them, you guys are so off base. This hypothetical question, so out in the left field. And the reason is because you're not in the scripture, you don't know what the Bible says. You know, there's a lot of children of God that way. There's a lot of children of God out there that, that are children of God, born of the Spirit, and will be in heaven one day, and, by, and then they will know all things, but they're ignorant while they're here. And they're struggling in this world, and they're, they're having a hard time making their way in a world that hates them and is against them. You know, that's the purpose of the gospel, is to give them the good news. Jesus wasn't here to philosophize with the philosophers. He wasn't here to politicize with the politicians. He wasn't here to, to, to argue with the, uh, the debaters. He was here to spread the good news that, hey, I am here, 
and the kingdom is near. You see, we need to know these scriptures. When we leave here tonight, I believe we're going to understand that, I believe you already understand that there is a great hope out there, and we don't have to sorrow when death comes upon us like those that have no hope. He said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Ye therefore do greatly err. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of folks that err out there, and they'll lead you astray if you aren't steadfast in your faith. But according to Paul, he says, when he tells them in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection and the corruptible, becoming un, incorruption and the mortal becoming immortality and the last trump. He said, therefore be ye steadfast, immovable, always abounding in these doctrines. Beloved, that's my desire for you, that we would be steadfast, immovable, and that by so doing we might not just save ourselves from this untoward generation, but those that we're around and that hear us. Praise God for his truth. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.